Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Thank you, dear friend Hilde. Today's podcast is entitled Small Cell, Big Problem. We're going to explore small cell lung cancer, what it is, how it's treated, how it's diagnosed. And we've got two amazing guests, Dr. Jacob Sands, oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Dr. Catherine Medor, thoracic oncology fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Hilde, I know you're excited to have these two great guests, so take it away. I'm so happy to have both of you here today to talk about a topic that I think is rarely discussed, and that's small cell lung cancer. And so um, I'd be really interested in, in your kind of laying out for the audience what is small cell lung cancer and how is it different from non-small cell lung cancer? Do you want to take that, Jacob? Sure. So, uh, you know, just broadly, cancer by definition are cells with mutations that have them stuck in an on-growing and dividing uh, um, pace. And, and small cell lung cancer tends to be uh, one, well, so looking at under the microscope, these are smaller cells, which initially led to the difference between small cell and non-small cell. Of course, there's a lot more we know now about uh, different cancers and um Non-small cell now has been separated into other uh, smaller subsets, which is beyond the scope of this discussion. Small cell lung cancer, we also now know that there are certain genomic alterations, alterations to the DNA that are common. So things like P53, things like RB1 are very common in this cancer type. And um, those are uh, essentially things that within the cells that are growing and when they're in the, in the process of replication, growing and dividing, these are things that help the cell to pause to repair mutations. And so these are often mutated and non-functional in small cell lung cancer, which just has it, keeps it growing and rapidly dividing. It's like the brakes on a car being broken. So broadly speaking, small cell lung cancer tends to be a lung cancer type that is often very aggressive. It often grows more quickly. It often also shrinks more quickly with chemo and radiation. Uh, and so the implications of that are really kind of uh, um, probably something we'll get into a little bit further. Yes, definitely. So um, Catherine, um, I know small cell lung cancer often is thought about as the smoker's lung cancer. And so with that kind of concept, there are a lot of issues around stigma um, I wonder what your thoughts are, or what your experiences with patients around stigma or their own feelings of guilt if they did smoke. Can you talk about your your experience with patients around those issues? Sure. Yes. It, uh, as you said, you know, small cell lung cancer within lung cancers um, is is more is most commonly associated with um, patients who have smoked uh, in their past or are currently smoking. I think one thing it's really important when I'm talking to patients and something you know I've learned over the years um, from mentors is, you know, anyone with lungs can get lung cancer, and I think um, that's the most important place to start is that 
we all have risk factors for different types of cancer. That's the bottom line. Um, and I think once you have someone in your office who is, you know, has a diagnosis of lung cancer, it really doesn't matter, um, you know, what brought them there. The point is to think about how to best take care of them moving forward. And I think it's really important to support patients and say, if you are still smoking, here are some resources we have, if you're ready to quit. And, you know, this is not your fault. <laughs> None of this is your fault. Um, and so, I think it's important to both have the research and understand, um, you know, how people might be at risk so we can catch things early, but then also know that um, it really is just a risk factor and it's important to support patients both through that and through their lung cancer diagnosis. Well, I was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2007. It was just by accident and fortunately it was 1A, which means it was super early, just by accident. You know, it just was what it was. But I do know that when I went to the hospital, I just had surgery and that was all. Um, but I, when I went to the hospital, they give you all these forms to fill out, name, rank, and serial number and all that stuff. But one of the questions was, do you smoke? And I thought at the time, holy cow, if I had to put down that I smoked, I would just want to dive out a window because it just felt so shameful. Mm. And so, I don't know, Jacob, do, do you experience that with some of your patients who feel like, oh, I smoked or I'm smoking and, and it's, you know, my fault. I feel so guilty for doing this. It was, you know. Yeah, this is a this is a huge topic. It's really hard to to some, you know, to add to, to your point, actually, I very commonly hear patients say that when they tell people that they have lung cancer, the first question is, well, did you smoke? And people say yes, and they often are met with oh, as a, as a, I mean, implying exactly what you are saying, um, and um, you know, I, I think as a society, um, over the last few decades, in the efforts to try and help or or push quitting smoking. Um, in, in demonizing smoking, the people who smoke got wrapped up in that too. And there are a lot of people that uh, st started smoking at a very young age. Um, the advertising, the culture, I mean, everything has kind of pushed uh, people into smoking at young ages, and especially people who started smoking decades ago. I mean, this is, you know, there were doctors smoking in the infusion room decades ago. I mean, it's crazy now to even consider that. But there are a lot of people that started smoking at that time as well. And this is incredibly addictive, and it's, ve it's very hard to quit. Um, and so one of the first things I do with people when they're diagnosed, uh, there's so much swirling in, in many of their minds. And so this feeling of guilt, uh, it just um, doesn't help. <laughs> it kind of adds to all of it. And so one of the first things is uh, exactly what Dr. Meter is saying, is saying, helping them get their feet on the ground. Let's, the past is now the past. Here we are. Let's focus going forward. You are supported. Um, we're going to do everything we can. Uh, you deserve good outcomes. And no matter how we got here, this is where we are. How do we move forward? And, um, and you know, I, I have some people who smoke who also don't want to quit. And I don't shame them for that either. I think it's important to say, um, that um, we're going to support them no matter what. And um, and for those who are interested in quitting, there are a lot of people that want to be there to help them and, and to uh, make it an easier path, but it is very difficult to quit. And so uh, we support people where they're at no matter where that is. 
I was going to say two things. So um, Backstage at Upstage, which is our podcast, has a wonderful podcast on um, on stigma with Chris Draft. Um, and so I would just urge everybody to tune into that podcast because it talks a lot about um, where this all started and the whole smoke out and then how that turned into stigma. Mm. Um, the second thing I wanted to mention was um, because – Upstage lung cancer is unique in that we use music and the performing arts to raise awareness about lung cancer um, and fund early detection research. Um, years ago, I, I produced a show, um, and we were looking at early television. This, and um, so one of the things that I looked at was um, some of these early um, advertisements, and there was something called the Camel News Caravan in the, I think it was in the 50s. <clears throat> and so um, on, in that commercial, they have a doctor, white hair, sitting kind of on the edge of his desk with a cigarette in his hand, talking about how camel cigarettes are going to be good for you and clear your throat and make you feel better and all of this kind of stuff. So if you Camel hears this podcast. Don't sue me. Anyway, um, <laughs> it uh, it was just it it was just a mark of the times. So so absolutely. I was just going to add, uh, and I'm only here to uh, reflect on some of the things you're saying. And and you have a question on your list of questions about statistics, and I, I'd like to get the docs to re respond. But in your case, Hildy, maybe you can start. Was all that information, the WebMD world, whatever it was at the time, was that just so stressful and overtaking at the time? How did you deal with that, and how do people generally react to the quote-unquote stats that they're seeing everywhere? Well, I think um, – so one of my other hats is as a psychologist, so I, I try to be <laughs> effective and efficient for all hats that I put on. But as a psychologist, I would just say that people react very differently to their diagnosis, which I'm sure both of you um, uh, could could speak to. And so I'm usually somebody, if my, if my nail polish is chipping, I will go online to see why and what and how, how to do better. When I was diagnosed with lung cancer, I decided I didn't want to look at anything and all I wanted to do was get the most effective physician that I could push for questions and make sure everything made sense. But that, that's what I needed to do for my own nervous system. But my husband, of course, looked up everything on earth. So, you know, I think people react to these diagnoses, you know, especially with lung cancer in the way that is most helpful to them. But um, hopefully one way or another they mm -hmm. can get information. So how do you each handle that when people are first given the diagnosis? Catherine? Yes, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think everyone is very different in that moment. Um, and certainly um, always hard for us to, to put ourselves in the shoes of patients. But I think it's really helpful. I have found initially when I'm meeting a patient to sort of get a sense of what's helpful to them and, and where they're coming from. Some people really like numbers and statistics. Some people don't. Um, and I think both of those things are great. And it's helpful as a as their doctor to be able to meet them where they are in that sense, because having the numbers at the ready and sharing those with with folks who find that very helpful, I think is important. We always, you know, also um, 
add the context that every patient's an individual so we can give numbers and stats. But I think the other important thing is recognizing that every patient's course is, is going to be their own. And so giving them a sense of what's out there and then also um, a reason to sort of hope in their own right is, is a good thing. And then I think it's really important um, to understand the patients who say, I don't, you know, I don't want those numbers. I don't want those stats, but I, I just want to trust that you're going to, you know, take care of me and share with me when you feel like there are important changes going on, because I think there's a way to both be honest about that as well as um, respect their sort of comfort level with um, the level of discussion. So everyone is, is very different, I would say. I wanted to support your, your position with what you just said, because that was exactly as I, my other hat is I'm a researcher. And so um, one of the things I say all the time is it's an N of one, which means it's just an individual. So if they say 30% of people with small cell lung cancer X or 50% of um, small cell lung cancer Y, uh, where do you as an individual fit those those the those aggregate numbers are interesting and they do tell us something but if you're looking for your own treatment and your own directions and choices it's really about you and that's why i think if you're fortunate enough and that's what i would encourage everybody to find the very very best most knowledgeable um and um, good match in terms of personality physicians so that you can just work those things out. Yeah, that and that is a that's a really big point that both of you are making. The most common question we get is essentially what's going to happen for me? You know, people want to know what their course is going to be. And the truth is you can't tell them. So one is I, I um, reassure people that I will be as blunt and as direct as I can possibly be. I don't ever want people to have to, to be reading my facial expressions to try and guess what I'm thinking. I'll just tell them what I'm thinking. I will say blunt and difficult things to say, but that's at least how we can then discuss. And I think when people feel reassured by that, then when I'm saying that things are good, they also are truly reassured by that. And, um, and not worrying that maybe I'm just saying something. I um, So one is being really blunt, but the other thing is that that word cancer carries so much. And so people come in with this huge bag of beliefs and expectations. And one of the hardest jobs as an oncologist is to try and read where people are starting in this journey, where their mental space is to begin with, so that we can discuss it in a way that's most helpful to them. Some people come in with this idea that, actually, I frequently say this directly, especially when we're talking about chemotherapy. I say that many people think that when they get chemotherapy, they're just going to be laid up in bed vomiting without hair. And um, and I say that as a starting point. Yeah. And really, the, uh, the majority of people nod and say, that's exactly what I've been picturing. And I say, okay, well, I don't expect that. I mean, for non-small cell lung cancer, the most common regimen we're using, people don't lose their hair. And even something like that, that I think we, you know, that, that losing hair is not life or death. But losing hair is a huge deal to people's perception of themselves. And I think it goes beyond their hair even. I think by their hair falling out, they now look more like that sick person with cancer that they picture. And it's it's about how much it's strengthening their preconceived ideas of that they're someone who's sick and dying. 
and and you know there are patients that do exceptionally well and i have a number of people that tell me once they're into their treatment a, a ways uh things are going well they say hey i've had days where i don't even remember i have lung cancer which is a huge thing for That's someone especially thing. undergoing treatment still um not someone who's years out from from curative treatment but someone who's undergoing treatment to say this which is to say that that the we've come a really long way on our therapies, and there really there there are subsets of groups that that have exceptional responses to treatment, and it's not everybody, and and there's a lot more for us to do on the research side, but helping people to understand that those those exceptional possibilities that exist, I think is what Dr. Meter is referring to in saying, you know, where the hope is in this process is that there are people that really do legitimately have extraordinary outcomes. But how to how to help people kind of first break down some of those preconceived ideas of, of how things will go to then allow us to say, okay, that now that don't hold those expectations, where are we starting? And what are the possibilities going forward? But I, I don't tend to give people real numbers because what I've found is that um, when I even explain all of uh, exactly what both of you are saying, the N of one, people still hold on to it. And months later, right. they'll say, oh, well, you said I had this much time. Oh, no, I never say that. I just think it's too hard for people to not grasp that number with everything um, so I, I'd say to them, hey, are we making decisions here? Is there is there a decision you're making based on this discussion or you're just wanting to know how things will go? Because if they want to make a decision, if, if there's something about their lives, then, then we need to weigh out the risks, benefits of kind of all aspects of that. Um, I, had, I had a guy years ago who, um, when I had seen him, it was four years into his treatment and he had sold his boat when he was diagnosed because he just... Like he had cancer, he was going to die in his, in his mind. That was the, and four years in, he was saying, man, I really wish I hadn't sold my boat. I, <laughs> I, what a bummer. I really love that. And I wish I could go out in that. And so if people are making decisions, then we need to discuss. If not, then I think the most important job is to help people to feel okay with not always feeling okay, or to feel, to not feel anxious about feeling anxious. That. It's okay to feel anxious. It's okay to feel uh, scared. All, all of these negative emotions are part of the process and not necessarily trying to cover those with, with anything either. And that, that discussion, as you know, Hildy, as a, as a psychologist, is very uh, uh, personal. It, it's to each individual that discussion happens in a different way. Well, that's right. And people's definition for themselves, their own self-definition of what life is and what what has meaning. Yeah, it varies tremendously. As far as um, diagnosis of small cell lung cancer, um, disentangling it from uh, non-small cell lung cancer, have there been any changes in the diagnosis of small cell lung cancer in the last bit of time, whatever that I mean, I think in terms of diagnosis, so as Dr. Sands um, evolved, uh, alluded to earlier in our discussion, you know, unfortunately, small cell lung cancer is typically kind of a faster growing cancer. It is harder to catch early, um, at least with our current screening methods. Of course, we hope that um, early detection um, gets better and better over the years, but right now it's, it's more often diagnosed at later stages. Um, and so, that's, you know, rather than being picked up on a screening 
CAT scan or something like that. Um, you know, that being said, even our current screening efforts are getting better and better. Uh, we have a long way to go in terms of, um, you know, getting everyone with those risk factors into the clinic and getting their yearly CT scans, which is the current standard of care. Um, and I think, you know, with progress there, we are catching some small cell cancers earlier um, and learning a little bit more about, you know, what's the best way to treat um, those small cell cancers that are caught early. So I think we have a lot of, my sense is we have a lot of room to go on that, um, you know, still, but, but the hope is to be able to catch them earlier. And then I think a lot of the progress in recent years has been in, you know, better and better treatments um, for later stage disease as well. If, you know, if, if the cancer's picked up after it's spread outside the lungs. I was going to just mention for the diagnosis or detecting it early, um, it's important uh, for people who are listening to, to know that um, Medicare um, will cover those screens um, for a variety of people, and maybe Jacob could say a few more words, but also there's a lot of pressure. I know upstage lung cancer is a part of a consortium uh, called LungCan, and we've been pushing and writing letters, and there are organizations who are pushing for earlier screening to be available and covered by insurance. Yeah, I'd say, uh, I mean, lung screening cannot be overstated. It really is um, has the potential to impact all cancer mortality more than anything out there. Uh, lung cancer, unfortunately, kills a lot of people. And through lung screening, we can really save the majority of individuals that are undergoing screening. Uh, um, or, or I should say the majority of people that would die from lung cancer but qualify for screening can be cured through the early detection of lung screening. So for anyone listening, if you qualify for lung screening, um, this is the best thing you can do to reduce the likelihood of, of you dying of lung cancer. That, uh, And some people, you know, are, are concerned about getting scanned because they're afraid of getting diagnosed with a lung cancer. But the truth is that you get diagnosed with an early stage one lung cancer, you get surgery and you're done. Um, or in some cases, radiation, if surgery is not an option for any reason, and you're done. Um, versus you wait a year or, or two, and that ends up being a, a stage four. And now we're talking about how to really just control the cancer for as long as possible. So the earlier detection is the most critical. There are a lot of resources out there. There's another website by the American Lung Association, savedbythescan.org. That's savedbythescan.org. And that has a calculator on there as well. So people can can who are listening can go on and, and plug in some numbers and see if they qualify or their loved ones qualify. But lung screening is overwhelmingly important. The other diagnostic thing for a small cell, just to mention, uh, is that people who have who do not have a smoking history that get diagnosed with small cell, <clears throat> quite skeptical uh, of, of that truly being small cell. And those patients should all get genomic testing also. Just like with non-small cell lung cancer, with small cell, that's, that's a rare scenario. But uh, I have seen patients that do have an actionable alteration and was probably more of a non-small cell variant that just the biopsy we got looked like small cell. You know, cancer by definition are cells that are mutated. So we put them into specific boxes, but they don't all fit beautifully into those boxes. And so rarely we do see patients without a smoking history that I think is more of a non-small cell. And so those patients should all get the DNA testing, cancer DNA testing, 
that uh, that we see with with non-small cell also. Uh, it's interesting. I I spoke uh, with a, a wonderful young woman who was diagnosed with small cell lung cancer at age 28, had not smoked. So your point is kind of interesting. Whether I I don't know enough about the details of her, you know, of her um, diagnostic uh, um, experience, but. Um, it it just says that it nothing's a hundred percent. You can't say if you never smoked, you, you know, you, it's impossible to get small cell. It's again back to n of one. So maybe there are very few people in that category, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. And and the other thing I was going to say is, uh, it's about advocating for yourself. And so if you don't fit into an obvious category, you know, you're seventy five years old, you've smoked for. 40 years, you've had a cough for, you know, quite a while. Maybe there are other things you would add to that that um, profile. Um, obviously, go to your doctor. First thing they think of is, well, let's just screen you for lung cancer because that makes sense. But there are so many people who wind up with lung cancer who don't just neatly fit into this picture. And so I, I would just say to anyone who's listening about yourself or a loved one or someone you work with, you know, if you have genuine worries or concerns to, to push for um, getting, uh, you know, a really careful evaluation and not have it dismissed. I've talked to so many people that you know, who have said, oh, the doctor said it couldn't possibly be lung cancer. Don't worry about it. And two or three years later, they have advanced stage lung cancer. So this is not to scare anyone. This is to, um, say, advocate for yourself. Um, Mm. Well, and the other part of that uh, is that, um, you know, for most patients, initially, they're treated for, for some kind of infection or um, they do some, uh, that's the most common is they'll get some antibiotics and it persists. Um, and that's because for the majority of people, that initial treatment works. And so you don't want to initially start out doing invasive procedures on everybody. Right. So the big thing is that if it didn't go away with that initial treatment, it's not that the doctors were done. It's that they're giving you the treatment for the most likely thing at that time. Right. And if it continues, if it continues to be an issue, then, then they're assuming you will continue to let them know that there's an ongoing issue. So it's not just a one-off and then all done. In medicine, you're doing what's, what's the most likely, what's the, what's the least likely to hurt somebody. And then if things are persisting, then, then things will get more and more invasive, uh, such as getting a biopsy. And so it's really important to, to continue to be on top of your own health. Targeted therapy is very much in vogue, and it's a great, great topic for all cancer study. But how does targeted, whether it be radiation or chemo or whatever, targeted therapy fit in with the current treatment plans that you are both uh, employing? We'll start with Catherine, Dr. Medor. Sure. Um, So you're absolutely right. And I think the explosion of targeted therapy options in the last uh, decade or two within lung cancer has been really exciting um, and has really changed the landscape of of treatment of lung cancer. For small cells specifically, um, I would say I think there's been a lot of um, recent advancements in terms of preclinical research. So kind of not approved therapies yet, but a lot of interesting work looking at different subtypes of small cell lung cancer and think a lot of smart people looking into how we target um, different, you know, 
subsets in the sense of right now and historically we've just treated all small cell lung cancers as the same we know based on other solid tumors and what we've learned over the years that that is unlikely to be the case most likely there are separate groups of small cell lung tumors that are going to respond differently to different therapies and so it's i think it's really important as we move forward to learn what's the important information at diagnosis to help us target certain therapies. Um, right now, just in terms of, you know, when a patient comes into the office and is diagnosed with small cell lung cancer, the, the treatment decisions are based on, you know, them having small cell um, and they're pretty standard across the board. But I think, you know, there's a lot of exciting trials and things going on looking at targeted agents. And so my hope is that um, that will be the next phase of small cell. Dr. Sands, you may have other thoughts to add on that. Yeah, so usually when we're talking about targeted treatments and, and what Dr. Mito is talking about is um, these are drugs that really hit specifically cells that have something. And, and um, in non-small cell lung cancer, when we talk about targeted therapies, it's usually different uh, DNA changes that indicate a receptor is a different shape. And so a drug can hit that unique shape. So it's hitting just the cancer cells without without hitting normal cells. Um, now, uh, within uh, small cell, I mentioned that if someone does not have a smoking history, it's important to do that cancer DNA testing. Uh, and that is because there are some people that I think it's more of a non-small cell where those targeted treatments that are already established for non-small cell are an option. In small cell lung cancer, we don't have any approved targeted therapies in that same kind of a, a way. And so there are, uh, as Dr. Meter is saying, there are trials underway with different receptors like DLL3, for example, is a receptor on small cell lung cancer that we can potentially hit. The drugs are really usually using that more as a way of getting the drug into those specific cells or uh, bringing those cancer cells with DLL3 uh, together with the immune system to create more of an immune response, which is a little bit different than the mechanism of the targeted therapies within non-small cell lung cancer. But but it is it is a nice step um, if it pans out. And these this is in trials, so we'll see. And so what about immunotherapy, which is another... Um, another um, exciting area in cancer treatment. What about that for small cell? So immunotherapy in general is a very broad term, and it's a, a field, you know, there's lots of different types of, of treatments that can be considered immunotherapy, whether it's, um, you know, cancer vaccines or some of those targeted therapies that Dr. Sands was talking about. The most common thing we're referring to when we say immunotherapy is something called immune checkpoint inhibitors, which are, um, have been approved for lots of different types of tumors, including non-small cell lung cancer and small cell lung cancer. So actually, that was probably the biggest addition to um, to general small cell lung cancer treatment over the last uh, five years or so is was the finding that adding one of these immune checkpoint inhibitors or immune therapy together with chemotherapy from the beginning actually, you know, um, leads to better outcomes for patients. So now that's the standard and that's been an exciting um, little bit of progress recently. And so that that's also being tested, you know, now that we know it's helpful in those um, in the metastatic small cell lung cancer, it's being tested in different um, clinical settings. And, and, you know, we're trying to figure out where are other potential uses of this and also which are the patients that are most likely to respond? I think that's the most important next question because there are some patients anecdotally who have really durable responses to this immune therapy. It's not a large number of them, but for those that 
respond well for a long time, that's really exciting. And so we need to try to do better at figuring out who are those patients that can benefit most. So what would you say, Jacob, what do you, what, what's exciting in small cell lung cancer research now? What, what's going on um, that, uh, yeah, that would give, uh, you know, a different direction or a broader direction um, in, this, in this area? Well, I think the most exciting thing right now is that there's so much happening. Um, you know, for small cell lung cancer, we have very few FDA-approved therapies. Um, there, uh, we, we did recently have lurbanectidin added as second line as well, along with topotecan. Those are really the only FDA-approved treatments. Um, the other drugs, though, that commonly used ones still, paclitaxel, arinotecan, temozolomide sometimes, these drugs have been around for a long time. And so there hasn't really been so much happening in small cell lung cancer like there has in non-small cell. The last 13 years for non-small cell have been absolutely revolutionary with a number of new targets, a number of new drugs. Small cell lung cancer hasn't had all of that. It's had the immunotherapy uh, that Dr. Meter mentioned and, and, and um, lurbanectidin. Um, but now there are so many other things in development, uh, different pathways, uh, uh, different mechanisms. I mentioned a couple of different ways of using DLL3 as a, as a receptor for um, for drugs in uh, in trials. Uh, Aurora kinase pathway. There are a number of others. So um, I am particularly interested in. Um, in the immunotherapy stuff that's happening where like binding DLL3 and binding the immune system uh, to then create more of an immune reaction. I think that's an exciting uh, mechanism. We'll see how that pans out. The immunotherapy uh, that is currently approved, it's a subset of patients that really benefit, but those who benefit, benefit unbelievably. I mean, I have people that are more than three years out from their initial diagnosis of small cell lung cancer where it was widespread. So this was, this was not curative treatment, um, but they get uh, the immunotherapy. Generally, I stop at two years and then monitor with scans. And, and I have people that are more than two years out where we're just doing scans every few months, and I call them high-five visits, where they come in and everything still looks good, and we schedule another one three months later. Um, are there some of these individuals that aren't going to have cancer show up in 10 years? I mean, we don't know, and the fact that we don't know is pretty remarkable. So, that um, that kind of thing we need to we need to help happen for everybody. And so, this other immunotherapy I'm particularly interested in because we are seeing some signs of there being some nice responses to the treatment. We don't yet know about the durability. We don't yet know about how many. As, as mentioned, it's still in trials, but if we can get that kind of home run for more people, then, um, then we're taking really legitimate steps forward for those individuals. Most of the drugs developed historically, when we're talking about chemo drugs, these are drugs where I liken it to a baseball analogy, if I may, but where you know, you're swinging for a single or double, and, and you get a lot of hits, but, um, but it doesn't necessarily win the game itself. You need a bunch of drugs where you're getting singles and doubles. These immunotherapy uh, outcomes are more like swinging for the fences. It is swinging <laughs> the bat hard, and unfortunately, most strike out. So that is the downside. But when, when it connects, home run. 
and um, and it is it is really changing the practice of oncology as well to have some of these individuals where you just follow them for years with such remarkable outcomes when uh, when things were so challenging at the get go. So. Um, more of that kind of outcome, more home runs is what we're really going for. In the meantime, we'll take all the singles and doubles we can get. Well, I love that. And and that sort of uh, brings me to kind of where I wanted to end up with this conversation, which has been so remarkable. And, um, and that is, um, where's the hope with um, small cell lung cancer? What can you say to patients, to families, to, um, you know, the general public about what the hope is for small cell lung cancer? I guess I can start. I would say, you know, as we sort of already referenced in our conversation, there it really is not overstating it to say there is so much exciting work going on in the research sphere within small cell. And you could say, oh, well, you know, it's been decades since we've had a major, you know, new home run, as Dr. Sand said. But I think there's some really important differences over the last few years and moving forward. And some of that has to do with um, just our technology is getting a lot better. So historically, small cell was harder to study because we need some tumor tissue to be able to do some of these analyses. And we often got smaller biopsies and less surgeries and things. But just that what we're able to do on small pieces of tumor tissue now in a research setting and what we're able to do non-invasively in terms of liquid biopsies moving forward. I just think the field is going to explode in that sense. And that information just, you know, leads to um, hopefully, and I think very legitimately, um, new therapeutic options. I think it's very, very reasonable to have hope for better small cell treatments moving forward. You know, one point I always make with patients um, is that I'm not going to talk about hope just for the sake of hope. I, I know we we have a lot of uh, kind of focus on what is the hope, um, and it's an important question. Uh, but I just want to clarify, you know, for individuals coming in, I, I think it's um, important for them to know that I'm just giving them everything straight and we're not just trying to. But, but there is a lot to look forward to in this. And, and so one is that anytime we're looking at the numbers, so people who do go and do their research, they're, look, they're, they're seeing how things have been behind us. But science is speeding up so much, and there are so many drugs in development. Um, and as mentioned, I, I have patients who are now many years in uh, on immunotherapy that really that's because they started on a clinical trial with immunotherapy um, before it was ever approved. So they're really years in. And with all these drugs in development that are in trials, that means people who are going to centers that have trials available are getting some of these potential future options today. And so the outcomes that are going to happen for anyone diagnosed now are really related to what's happening moving forward, not what's happened behind us. Dr. Meter also talked about a new framework of looking at small cell and potential subtypes. And, um, and that, that's something that might also help us to uh, utilize each of these drugs in development even more effectively and better as well. So th this is, as far as small cell goes, we're in kind of a revolutionary time of a lot of science going on. Uh, and, and hopefully many of these will pan out as being effective treatments going forward. I was going to say what I've learned um, about lung cancer um, in the 15 years since I was diagnosed is keep living because the longer you live, the more new uh, drugs, new procedures come out. And for me, that's hope. And also 
uh, Backstage at Upstage, <laughs> also had another wonderful podcast on, um, on clinical trials. And so it's important to know that there are trials out there, that are, people are researching, they are trying to do better and keep, um, keep uh, people alive longer. And the last thing, another a shameless promotion um, from <laughs> Backstage at Upstage, our, our first podcast was called Finding Joy. And it sounds like uh, it's kind of a, you know, antithetical to think if you're diagnosed with lung cancer, there's going to be joy. But really, um, I think somehow, and it could be in small ways, um, it could be telling someone you love them, or it could be listening to a Frank Sinatra tune, or um, taking a walk, or um, something else. But finding joy in the day, making life matter as much as you can while you're facing difficult times. So um, Couldn't agree more. And, and she does do shameless plugs, but I'm glad you're doing that because this podcast today, thank you both, has really elevated uh, what we're doing with so much great information. So, uh, Hildy, you deserve uh, kudos for lining up these two hard-to-book guests. Oh, well, I, I you know, um, I'm Catherine, it's so nice to meet you, and I, I look forward to many more times together. And Jacob, my heart. <laughs> he has my heart and has for a long time. He's just a, a wonderful, wonderful human being, and um, any of his patients are lucky to have him. So thank you both. Thank you, Jordan, as always. We look forward to uh, more podcasts and, and more conversations about lung cancer, which is not usually something people talk about our goal is to make this more of a conversation. It's okay to talk about lung cancer. So thank you. Thank you so much, Heldi. It's inspiring how much you're doing. I really appreciate all the work you're doing for so many in this community. It's really wonderful. So thank you for having me on. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. It's been fun. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.